0: Episode 12, a conclusion, the second half. When Dylan tore into Maggie's farm at Newport on the 25th of July 1965, the older generation were appalled, and yet across the 60s, their presence on the East Coast folk scene remained as powerful as ever. Ironically, one reason why Dylan decided to play an amplified set was his anger over Alan Lomax's condescending attitude towards the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. Three of them would be on stage a day later when Dylan strapped on his strap. Popular mythology sees the old guard swept away as Bob Dylan goes electric, silencing his Aaron-sweated critics with a succession of brilliant albums and a stage show which defined the raw, elemental nature of a fresh cultural phenomenon, rock music. Except that the likes of Lomax and Seeger didn't disappear. If only because, contrary to the distorted perception of arrogant youth, they weren't old. Indeed, freed finally from the bonds of McCarthyism, Pete Seeger's best days were still to come. Like the slightly older Lomax, Seeger was middle-aged, which, given the volume at which Dylan and his sidemen played their three-song set, goes a long way to explaining why he was so appalled by a perceived betrayal of all the ageing folk he's held dear. Arguably like a rolling stone did in due course change the world, but not in the way a banjo-playing East Coast liberal aged 45 might imagine on first hearing, assuming in the first instance that he could make out what young Bobby was singing. A lot of water had flowed under the bridge by the time Seeger, Lomax and their comrades again stood backstage listening to a Bob Dylan three-song set. The world in January 1968 was a far more dangerous place, and, as events at home were swiftly confirmed, nowhere more so than on the streets and campuses of the United States. Those events had already conspired to reinforce the New York New England intelligentsia's individual and collective worldview, not least by the radicalization of youth culture. The 1968 Woody Guthrie Memorial Concerts constituted the final rallying of a generation born into the Depression, if not before, whose political thinking was moulded by the New Deal, the fight against fascism, and a Cold War realisation that social equality and shared prosperity demanded a uniquely American brand of social democracy far removed from Soviet-style communism. Mostly, but not entirely, white they welcomed civil rights legislation and President Johnson's Great Society initiatives, but were increasingly appalled by a Democratic administration's military intervention in Southeast Asia. Opposition to the Vietnam War united the smartly dressed lifelong liberals seated up front at Carnegie Hall and the denim clad children of the counterculture dancing in the aisles throughout Dylan's second No Holds Barred set. This was a passing of the political baton to the sound of Woodrow Wilson Guthrie, refashioned for a generation who'd come of age to the sound of the Beatles and the Birds, not the Weavers and the Kingston Trio. Seeger and Lomax could have reacted in the same way that they did three years before, but even if both men either could not articulate the changes in their emotional response to contemporary folk music, or were simply unaware of how much more enlightened and tolerant they had become, they did appreciate why Dylan and his band generated such an enthusiastic response from every part of the audience, young and old. Chronicles ignores the Guthrie benefits, and, with the exception of Robert Shelton's magnum opus, Dylan biographies invariably display little or no interest. In their memoirs, Robbie Robertson and Levon Helm devote only a page or so to the Crackers' solitary gig. Articles and books about the band, not least the writings of Barney Hoskins, record the group's presence on the 20th of January 1968 and then quickly hurry on. After all, the following six months would see the recording and release of music from Big Pink and The Band re-establish themselves as musicians in their own right. Carnegie Hall was the last occasion on which the Hawks, as were the band-to-be, performed as Bob Dylan's sidemen. Henceforth, their presence on stage with Dylan would reflect a more equal relationship. At the close of the 1960s, it was the band, not their mentor, making the weather. Clapton closed down Cream and camped out in the Catskills because he wanted to absorb the honesty, authenticity, craftsmanship, musicianship and keen sense of tradition that rendered the band's first two albums so remarkable and so influential. Had Eric been in the audience at Carnegie Hall for the last 15 minutes prior to the interval, he would surely have found what he was looking for. A concentrated outburst of energy and excitement, more potent than a joyless, self-indulgent guitar solo, tasting the patience of both audience and fellow musicians. What's striking from the recordings and the photographs is that Robertson, Helm, Manuel, Danko, Hudson and above all Dylan were having the time of their lives. Rediscovering that moment in the past, when stepping on stage, signalled an explosion of exuberance and ego-massaging pleasure. In the privacy of West Saugerties, they fostered a fresh spirit of creativity and camaraderie. And then, on a chilly New York weekend in early 1968, they shared that same good-time feeling with the wider world. This was no deliberate fulfilment of a master plan, but that doesn't diminish the significance of the Carnegie Hall sets as an event. The significance of that event has for too long been overlooked, as has the added import of Bob Dylan singing a song as obscure and as potent as Dear Mrs. Roosevelt. This is not a great Bob Dylan song, and in any case he didn't write it, nor is it a great Woody Guthrie song, inexplicably absent from the canon. But it is a great Bob Dylan performance not least because the band-to-be play with that same precision, instinctiveness, engagement and vivacity which is the hallmark of consummate musicians forged into a single entity. The band were lucky with their live albums, not least rock of ages. The star Studied the last waltz is by definition an artificial representation. Here was a group that always rose to the occasion as on their solitary excursion as the Crackers. Yet, once the first flush of fame had passed, excess and ennui generated too many box-ticking sets. Fans with long memories should forget an underwhelming appearance at Wembley Stadium in September 1974 and focus upon the revelatory performance that prefaced Dylan's Isla White performance five years before. All this was still to come when the Hawks that were stepped on stage at Carnegie Hall on the afternoon and the evening of Saturday, the twentieth of january, nineteen sixty eight. None of the audience were there to see the side men, and it's safe to assume that most, if not all, of Dylan's fans had anticipated he would play solo. Neither the audience nor the organisers, nor the other artists, nor even the players themselves, had any idea what lay ahead. For the Crackers, it was global recognition in a collective persona not that different from what was on display at Carnegie Hall. For Dylan, the immediate future lay in the studio, but it would be decades before his admirers appreciated just how much music he recorded in the ostensibly fallow years at the turn of the decade. The 2014 compilation, Another Self-Portrait, 1969-1971, signalled a continuity from the basement tapes when alone in the studio, confirming Dylan's attraction to long-forgotten songs like Dear Mrs. Roosevelt. That attraction is lifelong, but it doesn't stop songs being rediscovered and then discarded. Dear Mrs. Roosevelt served its purpose perfectly on the day, but was then of no further use. In Dylan's mind, sentiment can't dictate a set list, and so the song has never been sung again. When it has been resurrected, notably on an album of Guthrie covers by Joel Raphael, then it's Bob Dylan's and not Woody Guthrie's version which serves as a template for reinterpretation. Why search out the original lyrics when Dylan's version provides such an easily accessible model? Any conscientious artist who does delve into the Woody Guthrie archives has little incentive to sing a 14-verse song certain to provoke a sharp intake of breath the moment listeners learn of Roosevelt looking up to Joe Stalin. Yet, at a time when, thanks to the efforts of family, folklorists and archivists, so much of Woody Guthrie's less familiar work is finally resurfacing, we need to know what the uncensored version of Dear Mrs Roosevelt sounded like. 70 years ago, a sceptical Wallace supporter was out on the campaign trail, regaling the crowd with probably his last complete composition. It might be 14 verses, but that would not have stopped Woodrow Wilson Guthrie delivering his New Deal panegyric with characteristic humour, vitality and empathy. Guthrie was already a sick man, but he still knew how to put on a show and woo a crowd. These days, Bob Dylan is more likely to be rifling the Great American Songbook than consulting the Woody Guthrie archives to recall what he left out of Dear Mrs. Roosevelt back in the day. Even if he can't remember every verse which did survive the cut, he won't have forgotten the song. Five decades have passed since the day he performed Dear Mrs. Roosevelt, and throughout that time he's never sung it again. Yet Dylan is notorious for suddenly on stage recalling a song from way back when and expecting his band to join in with scarcely a beat missed. It was said to infuriate the Heartbreakers when he toured with Tom Petty. Is it too fantastical to anticipate that somewhere, sometime, on some future leg of the never-ending tour after yet another iconic song has been tested to destruction. The bemused successors to Robbie Levon et al. will hear their master launch into Dear Mrs Roosevelt, don't hang your head and cry.